let me begin kind of strangely with a confession. Now, I love my wife for many reasons, for many, many reasons, but the one that I'd like to share about this morning is that without her, and I mean 100% without her, I would be a full-on hoarder. Like, it would be a problem. I would be on TV where people would be trying to help me. I would be a bad hoarder. I, I don't really know where it started, but I, I have this really uh, strong desire to keep and collect anything that has given me enjoyment or excitement or has been interesting in the past. And I also try to uh, keep anything that has a lot of history involved. And so if 18-year-old Steve was to go to the movies and enjoy that movie, the natural response would be to buy it on DVD. And today, probably, it's in my basement on a shelf in the packaging still, uh, because I've never watched it again. But I needed to have it because I enjoyed it. Strange. It's really strange. Uh, if I go to a sporting event, the natural desire, you got to keep the ticket stub, right? Because it was an enjoyable time. I need to keep that. And it's, it's so silly that that is my desire because I am never going to look at it again. And I'm probably going to lose it in two or three weeks' time. But I have this urge to keep it. It's, it's strange. When when you take this urge to hoard past memories and you combine that with nerdiness, it just gets even worse. It's bad. I, I collect advertising signs from companies I've never heard of before. I have wooden crates in various places in my house. I collect items and coins from World War II. And this is one of those things. This is a cabinet that I found in a small town called Angus in Ontario, and as soon as I saw it, I fell in love with it. I had to get it because, because it's this. It's, it's, it's a cabinet, yeah, of course. And I, I, I love it. It's an amazing cabinet, but I've never figured out what to put inside of it, and I've never put it on a wall before. Uh, I think I, I think I bought it about uh, six years ago, uh, but it's mine, and I have it, and it's there, and I'm keeping it because I, that's, that's this tendency that I have. I hoard these things. I mean, first of all, I don't, I don't hoard random stuff. It's all stuff that I have interest in. It's things that I enjoy. It's things that have given me joy or safety or security or are just interesting. I have a fascination with history. And so I hoard all of those things. But the real deeper reason is I think I struggle with change. I don't do well with change, and so if something gave me joy in the past, I have to keep that, because what if I can't find something else that'll give me joy in the future? You know, if I enjoyed that moment, or if that person or that thing gave me safety and security, well, I need that to stay in my life forever, because what if I don't find it again? And so I end up collecting all these DVDs still in the packages, just in case. Just in case. It's silly, I mean... I, with my struggle with change, I've almost started to create these time capsules of memories where I don't use them, 
or look at them, but they're there as a safety blanket so that all of those past moments and all of those past joys, they stay with me. Now, am I the only crazy person here this morning, or does anyone else struggle with this as well? It could just be me, but has anybody ever thought it would be a good idea to buy four of the same shirt so you could wear it forever? Uh, I've, never, I've never done it, but I've thought about it a lot of times. Maybe you've, maybe you've read a book that changed the way you thought about your life, and yet I need to buy that. And so you go to the store, and you buy the hardcover version, and you put it on your shelf, and it's still there, never to be read again. But you needed that book, because what if you can't find it again? Maybe you are driving a really old car, like you're, you've been driving it way past the, the due date of a car where it just, you need to get rid of it. Your safety is in question, but you're not going to get rid of it because that was your first car, or that was your relative's car, or that was the car you bought in college, or it has the cup holders in the right spot, and you know how it all works, and what if you can't find another one again, right? Or maybe it's full of memories, it's almost like a photo album on wheels, and where where are you going to buy a new one of those? And so you keep it, and you hoard it, and you put yourself in danger to drive it because it's yours, and you need that in your life. See, as I was reflecting this week, it seems like humans are all about memories and not so much about change. And that's a struggle, because maybe you've realized this earlier than I have in my life, but... Life is about change. (laughs) Life is about the world changing and becoming new. And that's a struggle for me. And that might be a struggle for you this morning. And so when we find these things that give us joy or hope or safety, we cling to them and we hoard them so that we can experience that again. Rather than doing the logical thing, and that is, recognizing that these things, are in, they're in the past, and I need to instead find new things to cling to and hold on to that are going to give me real hope. That's the challenge. Do I keep making time capsules, or do I find something else? And so, uh, this psalm that we're reading this week is kind of like that. Uh, but more specifically, we're going to look at what should our lives look like, Where should our hope be found? And it's a little bit of a personal encouragement for me to stop hoarding things this week. Let's read the psalm together. It's Psalm 146, and it says, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. But blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. 
The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Now before we can truly dive into this psalm, we need to understand a very important truth. And that is that this psalm, just like all 150 psalms that are in the Bible, are they're poems. They are written as poems, and so you can't read them like other texts. You need to read them like a poem. But not like a North American poem that we're used to, where we rhyme words, and we start at the top, and we work our way to the bottom, and the bottom line is typically the most important. Right? Roses are red, violets are blue, sugar is sweet, so are you. That is the most important line, blue and you rhyme. But in ancient Judaism, it doesn't work like that. And so we can't expect to get the same type of truths out of it if we're not reading it the way that they intended. You see, in ancient Judaism, they don't rhyme words, they rhyme themes. An entire sentence or a line will talk about a theme that they will repeat or contrast later. And rather than working from 1 to 10, they actually go towards the middle. And so verse 1 and line 10 match up, the second verse and the second last, the third and the third last, on and on, until we hit that middle line. And it is that middle line that is the whole reason that the poet is writing. That is the main point. That is the thesis. And so, I thought if that's how they wrote it, then this morning as we investigate some of the truths that God is offering to us, we're not going to go from one all the way to ten, but instead we're going to look at each paired line and go to the middle. Is that cool? Does that work for everybody? Let's look at the first part. The author begins and ends the psalm with Praise the Lord. Both at the beginning and at the end, it says, Praise the Lord. And I think he does this for a really important reason. He's got two points here, and that is, before we reflect on any situation, before we reflect on our life, our struggles, our successes, our joys, our failures, before we even mention that, we got to start with praise and praising God. That's the starting place. You see, for this author... He picked that word perfectly. And that word praise in Hebrew, it means to celebrate. It means to join in marriage with God. It means to shine. And so rather than starting anywhere else, he's saying we got to start with praise. That's the starting place. Also connected to that, we need to understand, and I think the writer understands this, that the very fact that we are alive right now that we have a soul, an inner being, that is praise to God already. Our very existence is, a, is the starting place of praise to God. And so even if we choose not to praise, our soul is already doing it. So we might as well get on board. You know, if we, our very inner being is praising God, that's the starting place, then let's make that the starting place for our lives as well. And then the psalmist puts that praise the Lord at the end after he describes life and struggle and difficulty and success. And after reflecting on 
how difficult life is, he then still says, I'm going to praise God. What the psalmist does is he bookends his entire life and all of his situations. I'm going to start with praise, and I'm going to end with praise. For the psalmist, for this writer, praise is a constant, not an every so often. Let's look at the second pairing. It says, I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Now, if we were to take the Hebrew words that he used and look at the really complex definitions, we could actually get a bit of an insight into what he's looking at directly. This sentence can be exploded, basically, into way more insight on our life, and so it could read like this. My life will shine praises to God while I am active, while I am alive, and even while I am reviving. See, I think the psalmist understands that Sometimes life is about revival. It's not always summertime in our lives, but sometimes our lives look a little bit more like spring or a little bit more like fall. And that's okay. That's a reality that we are living with. And he is saying, whether I am, or while I am alive, while I am active, while I am thriving, and even while reviving, I'm going to praise God with my very life. That is the response that this psalmist has. And then he reflects on why I'm going to praise God. And that is because our God is always there. He is reigning forever. He is a constant, and so praise is going to be a constant in my life too. The next pairing lines read, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day his plans perish. And the paired line is, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Now this might be another uh, situation where I'm admitting my nerdiness, but I think this section is beautiful. It is so perfectly prepared and written. The psalmist does an amazing, amazing job. There are so many things going on here, and so we're going to try to unwrap as much of it as we can. It starts by saying, don't put your trust, don't put your confidence, your safety in princes, because no matter how good they are to you, they're not going to be here forever. And you really can't guarantee that they're going to treat you fairly at all times. It's just not possible. Now this is a bold statement for an ancient person to write because they're surrounded by princes and kings and queens and nobility. But this is an even bolder statement because scholars think that this psalm was most likely written by King David. And so King David... Is He's king right now. He is living his life as king in that position. And he is surrounded by all of these neighboring countries and cities who also have kings. And those 
neighboring countries, they deify their kings. They make them into gods. And so he could say, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I take care of my people. I keep them safe. I am here for their best interests. They should not only put their trust in me, but they should deify me. But reflecting on all of the neighboring nations around him, he says, that's, that's not even true. I, no matter how good I am, no matter how helpful I am, I am a human. I'm going to be here today and gone tomorrow. I'm going to make mistakes. I am frail and fragile. I'm not somebody that you should put your ultimate trust in because I'm not going to be there to help you with that. King David is reflecting on this moment, and I think he does it in such a profound way that we can take into our modern lives. I mean, what about our motivational speakers, our self-help books, uh, even, I mean, the stock exchange, my retirement savings plan? These might be good things, but how do I know that they're going to be here tomorrow? How do I know that they're going to be here for me in 20 years? How do I, I mean, are they able to save my life eternally? No. So David's saying, don't put your trust in those things. You've got to find a better option. No matter how good these things are in your life, they're not truly able to save you. Now, this is where I think it gets even more poetic. He starts by saying, don't trust princes, even myself. And then he says, because one day their breath will leave their bodies, and they will return to the earth, and on that day their plans perish. Now, David, the writer, he picked this word perfectly. He could have picked any word to describe this, but he used that word breath, He takes directly from Genesis 1, where we learn that God breathed the entire universe into existence. And in Genesis 2, when we see God forming human bodies out of the earth, and then breathing life so that they could become human beings. And so he's really putting two things out there for you. He's saying, you got two options right now. You could trust in a guy who... His breath might leave him one day and he's going to return to the same earth that God formed him out of. Or you can trust in the God whose breath is eternal and is able to make the entire universe, the cosmos, the stars, and everything in it. You got a choice to make here. You have to pick one. He then drives it home further by saying, that human... Myself as a prince, as a king, when that happens, when my breath departs, my plans are done. But God, the one who has an eternal breath, his plans never change, they never end, they never fail. That's the way you got to go. And the last point in this pairing, and I think this one is the most beautiful Don't put your trust in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Now, if you've spent any time around churches, you might be familiar with that phrase, son of man. And it's a weird choice because, I mean, it's even weird for other reasons. Jesus, while he was on this earth, when people would ask, who are you? He would say, I'm the son of man. And that's a weird choice for Jesus because son of man just means human. means human being. 
And so, if we take that, that, well, you'll see, you'll see, I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> Biblically, when we look at that word human, we see a really profound truth, and that is that when God made humans, when he formed them out of the earth, when he formed us out of the earth, he made humans to be ambassadors for God. Ambassadors. But instead, those first humans, they decided to be advocates for themselves. And so for thousands and thousands of years, the Jewish people, they waited for this ultimate human, the human who would come back and who would fulfill the entire destiny of humanity, partnering with God, caring for the earth, caring for people, and so they waited. That ultimate human, the goal was that they would come and they would live how God planned for them. The other word that is used in that sentence is salvation. Now that Hebrew word is Yeshua, and if you put that into a name, it's Jesus. The, word, the name Jesus means salvation, to rescue, to deliver, to save. And so if we take those definitions and we just explode them a little bit and we read back that sentence, we get, I'm going to say, one of the most profound things that David could have ever written. And that is, don't put your trust in a son of man in whom there is no Jesus. Put your trust in the Son of Man. His name is Jesus. Where humans fail, Jesus doesn't. When humans run away, Jesus runs towards. When humans are scared, Jesus goes in boldly. I mean, we see that verse after verse after verse in the Gospels where I mean, ultimately, we see God's love and care and kindness and eternally caring for us when he came to earth, became Jesus, went to the cross boldly, died on it, and unlike those frail humans where their plans are gone, Jesus then rose again, and he is not a distant memory. He is not a time capsule of the past, but he is alive and well and interceding between us and God and caring for us and celebrating and is full of joy. And David says, you got two options then. Do you put your trust in me, a son of man, in whom there's no Jesus, or do you change and put your trust in the Son of Man because his name is Jesus? David goes on, the psalmist goes on. Uh, this is the final pairing before we hit the very middle of the poem. And it says, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is is in the Lord his God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow 
and the fatherless. Now, if, if I'm being honest, as I was preparing for this week, I, I, I really wondered if I was qualified to teach on this section. Um, I mean, not qualified academically or pastorally, but, but just as humans having conversation right now. I mean, these are big topics. These are big things to experience. And while I have my struggles and my difficulties and my challenges, I mean, when have I truly experienced things like oppression or true hunger or prison? When have I experienced blindness or immigration or fatherlessness? I mean, these are big things to think about. And maybe you're sitting there this morning while I feel like I'm underqualified. Maybe you feel like, yeah, I have a master's in struggle. I have a master's in difficulty. I know about that stuff. I've experienced true oppression and voicelessness. Maybe I've experienced immigration and the struggle of coming to a new place. Maybe you've experienced fatherlessness and the passing of a loved one. Maybe you've experienced true hunger and longing. And if you're sitting in this room right now and you felt like that or you feel like that, I just want to pause and encourage you and say, you are here for a reason and that's something worth celebrating. And second, the most encouraging thing that I can share is God, the God of the universe, the maker of all things, is always on your side. Time and time again in Scripture, we see that God is always on the side of the oppressed. He is always on the side of the broken and the hurting and the marginalized. He is always on the side of the fatherless and those in prison and those who have hunger and longing. And He is always going to be doing that. God is never changing. God's plans are never perishing. They are never failing. And so if God was on the side of the oppressed, then he is still on your side. And if he is on your side, he is going to be still on your side in the future because God is always on the side of the broken and the hurting and the marginalized and the oppressed. And so, in light of that, then this verse is really for you. It says, blessed are you whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord your God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in it. See, there's something powerful here. The psalmist is saying, see how big God is? See how mighty and powerful he is that he can breathe, he can speak, and an entire universe is created? He is big enough that he can overcome those obstacles for you. And then specially, he is close enough that he can comfort you. And in a life that is filled with so much difficulty and struggle and with themes like oppression and fatherlessness and hunger, we can trust that God is going to be there because he always has been. But if you're... If you're sitting in this room feeling a little like I did this week, like uh, maybe my life isn't evident in this verse, I'd like to encourage you as God encouraged me this week by saying that your life is just as evident in these verses as the oppressed. 
Because again, God, the maker of the universe, the maker of all things, he made you in his image. And if God is on the side of the oppressed and the broken, then you as his image bearer were literally made to be on their side as well. You were formed, you were created to care for those who are hurting and broken and needy, who are hungry, who are without fathers, who are widows, who are in prison. Because the good God of the universe is on their side and you are his ambassador. If God is on their side, then we need to be as well. Second, to up the ante a little bit, if you are a believer in Jesus this morning and you have been given hope from God, then the natural response has to be giving God's hope to other people. Because, you see, in God's kingdom, there's a paradox that's existing. I mean, just after church, go outside, look at nature, go for a drive at night, look at the stars, and it's so obvious how generous God has been. God has made this world that is full of beauty and creativity and wonder and amazement and joy. He has filled it with amazing resources. And if you're like me, the tendency is to then hoard all of that for yourself. Because what if I'm not going to experience joy again? I need to hoard as much joy as I can right now. But the paradox that is evident in life And in God's kingdom is that the more you hoard it for yourself, actually the less you have. In God's kingdom, the more you give joy and hope and safety and excitement to other people who need it, the more you're going to experience hope for yourself. And lastly, we're at the middle of the poem. The main point, the thesis everything that this has been leading towards, and it's simple yet profound, just like poetry usually is. It says, who keeps faith forever. God keeps faith forever. Because you see, eventually this cabinet is going to rot. The glass is going to shatter. My self-help books are going to be long forgotten. World leaders are going to change. Even that DVD that's still in the package is going to fade away, even though it's in the package. But God, the maker of all things, the maker of the universe, the one who can breathe existence just by saying a word, the one who is never changing, never failing, always there, he can't fade or rot or collapse, or struggle, or fail. And so the author is saying, we have now looked at all of life's difficulty, and joy, and struggle, and beauty. We started with praise. We looked at examples of where people put their trust in things that are going to fade. And he says, we got a choice now. What am I going to put my trust in? Do I put my trust in my retirement savings plan to guarantee a good future? Is it going to be here? Is it going to fade? 
Do I put my trust in all of those time capsules of memories and joy and safety and all these things that are just going to rot away like this cabinet? Or do I put my hope and my trust and my safety and security in the one who can do that? Don't put your trust in a son of man in whom there is no Jesus. Put your trust, your hope, your joy in the Son of Man. His name is Jesus. And let's bookend every situation with praise. Because that's a good life.